Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. This morning for Every Day is Earth Day, we are talking with Lee Tesdell. He owns and manages Tesdell Century Farm located in Polk County, Iowa. And he's also a retired Minnesota State University professor of English in technical communications. Good morning, Lee. Hi, uh, Karen. How are you doing? It's uh, nice to hear a voice from Mankato. Yes, it's great to hear from you. Now, you're in Iowa now after you retired from Mankato, and we've chatted with you before about your strip farming because that's a a sustainable way of farming, and you are also very involved with other ways of protecting our environment. So I thought we'd chat with you today about some of those things and maybe give others ideas of how things they could possibly do to make the world a better place. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, we're trying to uh, be good citizens, I like to say, on on, uh, our farm here. I own 80 acres that that my great-grandfather bought in 1884, and I call that Tesla Century Farm. Uh, here in Iowa, we have a century farm designation. That means it's been in the same family for at least 100 years. We are situated on land that was deeded to the federal government in 1842 by the Meskwaki people. And so it wasn't very long after that, 1855, when my uh, Norwegian ancestors arrived. And they, uh, you know, they found prairie here. And uh, and now, of course, we have most mostly annual crops and almost no prairie. Um, but we are trying to do some things to alleviate the negative effects of our row crop farming in this area. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of the things you're doing on the farm to maybe reinstate some of the prairie, perhaps, or just take better care of the land? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So I um, differentiate between two kinds of practices that we're putting into place. We have infield practices and then edge of field practices. So the infield would be cover cropping and no-till. So no tillage in the fall and then seeding a second crop uh, so that we have living roots in the soil nearly all year. And then the edge of field practices are practices that we put into place outside of the row crop acres. So, for example, I have seeded uh, three acres into a native prairie where we all had uh, built terraces in the past. And so it kind of separates my farm there into into sections. And then uh, along the creek, we have uh, what are called buffer strips where we uh, on 50 feet either side of the creek, we planted perennial grass. And then in that area, we installed a woodchip bioreactor and four saturated buffers. What is so that, Lee? I'm not familiar with that, the, the buffers. Sure. So what we're, most of the area where I, my farm is located is tiled. We have drainage tile in the ground to alleviate some of the wet areas on the landscape. So a lot of farmers in this area started tiling about 100 years ago to increase the number of acres that they could farm. And so the problem now that we have is that nitrate, 
which is a byproduct of nitrogen fertilizer that we put on the land for corn, flows off the land with the tile water. So if the corn doesn't use up all the nitrogen fertilizer and or there is natural nitrate occurring in the soil, that extra nitrate then flows with the tile water into the creek. And so that's one of our uh, main pollution problems in Iowa and also in southern Minnesota. So we're trying to reduce the amount of nitrate flowing into the watersheds uh, with these saturated buffers and wood bioreactors. So how do they work? I mean, what does it look like? I'm trying to picture what it is. Sure. Well, you can't see much because almost everything is buried. The drainage tile itself is usually three to four to five feet down below the surface of the, of the ground. The saturated buffer works by diverting the tile water into a new tile, which is parallel with the stream, and that tile, which is perforated, that tile then carries the tile water parallel to the stream instead of straight into it. Hmm. And then the perennial vegetation in that area between the tile and the creek initiates a kind of chemical biological reaction underground that uh, turns much of the nitrate into nitrogen gas, which is harmless. And the wood chip bioreactor is similar in that we intercept the drainage tile. The wood chips become the catalyst for the denitrification in that case. So what we're trying to do is reduce the nitrate that leaves my farm in the tile water. Is that a common practice? Well, it's becoming more common. The saturated buffers actually are, are more common than the wood chip bioreactors. Just in the last two years, in my area, we've installed more than 50 of them. We had what was called a batch and build program. It was a collaboration between the Soil Water Conservation District, Oak County, and uh, Iowa Department of Land, Agriculture and Land Stewardship, and, and several others. And they, they were able to build a whole bunch of them in, in our area. So the batch and build idea, yes, is fairly unique. But there are quite a few uh, going in around Iowa. And uh, we're hoping to continue building more so that we reduce the nitrate in our in our watersheds. I was wondering how common that was because here I'm mm-hmm. a, a member of the Lake Washington Water Quality Committee, and we're talking with LeSueur County and working with them and preventing the nitrates and things from flowing into the, the watersheds that pollute our lakes. And I don't know if that's one yes. of the plans and how expensive something la- like that is. Is it a practical on a large scale? Yeah, the saturated buffers aren't all that expensive. It mostly goes into machine time, tiling, you know, running the new tile parallel to the creek, and then the uh, junction boxes are installed. The first one on my farm was installed in one day, and it would cost in the neighborhood of four to $5,000. So and a lot of it uh, was, was cost share through a water quality initiative here in this area. But, yeah, they're, mu- they're a lot cheaper than the wood chip bioreactors. The wood chip bioreactor uh, requires a big pit, and then the wood chips can be fairly expensive. Is one um, shown to be more effective, effective than the other? On my farm, yes. The wood chip bioreactor, the, the latest, the, the last data I had was denitrifying at 58%. Mm-hmm. And my first uh, saturated buffer was denitrifying at 91%. Wow. So it was quite a bit more effective than the wood chip. Bioreactor. I think average numbers are 
probably a little lower than that for bi- uh, saturated buffers, but I'm not aware of what a what we have for a statewide average. But um, I know that that first one on my farm was very very uh, effective. What are some other things you're doing, Lee, in terms of climate and environment and working to make it better for all of us? Well, on my on my farm, I, I do a couple of other things. Uh, I I look at building resilience to climate change in a fairly comprehensive way. So I I drive an electric car and I uh, charge it often uh, during the day with my solar my two solar arrays. I have uh, 24 solar panels, and I I see that as part of the the whole picture. I think that the conservation on the land and then um, trying to reduce my carbon footprint and all all go together. The uh, the cover crops, for example, this winter right right now as we speak, I have no bare ground on my farm at all. There's uh, I have alfalfa and some kernza, which is a perennial grain crop, and then I have 53 acres of cereal rye for seed. So you know I'm trying to do new uh, do a number of things. Try to keep think of my farm as a carbon sink, right? Try try to keep as much carbon in the soil as I can. And then trying to decarbonize my uh, my transportation footprint a little bit with my electric car and my uh, solar panels. So there are things we can do. Rural upper Midwest. And I'm not the only one doing them. There's, they uh, seem like small potatoes in a way, but I think if we all do a little bit, we'll be better off in the future. I'm hoping so anyway. You <laughs> mentioned the cover crops, Lee, and. And that's something more and more farmers are doing. I don't know that everybody's caught on. And, of course, this winter we've had some very harsh winds. And you can tell the folks who don't use the cover crops because we see that what's called snurt. It's the snow and the dirt mix. Exactly. So it's the brown on top of the snow. And, and that means basically you're losing a lot of your land, which is a big expense. So how is the snurt down on your farm? Well, um, I don't lose very much, but we had some pretty mean wind. So I probably lost a little bit, too. But I have, like I say, all my acres are, are covered with living plants, so I didn't lose a lot. Uh, some of my neighbors lost more than I did once you do fall tillage. And like you say, we can certainly see the snurt and the uh, drifts along the roads out here. It's sad, too, because they're not only losing topsoil, which they'll never get back, they're also losing fertilizer that they applied last fall, too. How do we convince people to do that? Because it's an extra step maybe to have to put those crops in at the end of the season and you just want to be done. And so what do you tell people? How do you tell them that it's an effective and worthwhile to do? Yeah, it's a great question. I just came from a, a meeting. I just got elected to the Polk County Soil and Water Conservation District as a commissioner here in Polk County. And we, we just uh, were discussing some of these ideas. It's tough. There are evangelists out there, farmers in, in every area who are very gung-ho early adopters of uh, new conservation technology. And one of the ideas we had was to, you know, how do we encourage those evangelists or those uh, early adopters to sort of form teams in their areas and connect meetings and show the financial side, you know, show how if you take the long-term view, it's really a way of increasing profit on your farm, taking the long-term view, because you're you're keeping your topsoil where it should be, and you're eliminating some expensive tillage, and 
and you may or may not increase your yields, certainly not right away, but at least you're not losing precious topsoil that you'll never get back. So it's a tough question. I think a lot of my neighbors have been farming a certain way for mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years, and, they don't, and they've gotten good yields, and they don't see the need to change. Other farmers are very aware and take the long-term view and, and are changing their practices and trying new things. But it, it is hard to change, you know, if you've been farming a certain way for 30 or 40 years. It's tough, you know. Well, especially since you probably already have that equipment that you use for that many years to farm a certain way. Because isn't there some exactly. investment to farming in the new organic or sustainable manner? Well, that's a good question. So, actually, the uh, most fuel-intensive and most, let's call it, power intensive practice on the farm is chisel plowing corn stalks in the fall. And so, you know, if you were to switch away from that fall tillage, you wouldn't need your biggest tractor and you wouldn't need the chisel plow. So there'd be some savings there. Now, you asked a good question, what about planting? Well, the the modern planters mostly have a hydraulic down pressure capability. And so that's most no-tillers and cover croppers are using hydraulic down pressure on their planters to go down through that extra plant material that's left from, from the year before. So it wouldn't require a new planter necessarily, but a more modern planter maybe than some have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing. You're probably going to see fuel uh, savings because you're not going to be doing as much tillage. So on that side of the ledger, that's an advantage. As far as harvesting equipment, no change there. As far as herbicide application, now of course this wouldn't be true for organic, uh, which is a separate conversation, but uh, herbicide application is probably going to be about the same no-till cover crop. So I know on my farm, uh, typically we do two herbicide applications and that hasn't changed with no-till cover crops, still two, two applications usually. So uh, not a lot of equipment changes are needed usually. One thing that some cover croppers are doing is grazing the cover crop in the fall and maybe early spring. So in effect, you've got uh, extra free feed for your cattle or your sheep. The only thing that would be required there, of course, would be fencing. Right. So if you don't want to have fencing anymore, then... That would be an expense, but but it is nice to have that so-called free feed also. Uh, That could uh, decrease your hay budget quite a bit, which is always nice. (laughs) Right. I was going to ask you how you're doing with uh, your type of farming, given the the droughts we've had. I assume you've had the droughts down there like we have up in southern Minnesota. And have you found that your method of not taking all the top crops and things off has been a good thing? Well, that's that's a good question. I don't really have good, precise data on that. You're right that the last two growing seasons were quite dry. We started both crop seasons quite wet, actually, and then, like like my neighbor said, the uh, you know the spigot got shut off yeah. <laughs> for most of the summer. So a couple things about that. We did see a negative effect with the cover crop the year before. We planted corn into a cereal rye that we had killed with herbicide. 
but we think the cereal rye, before it died, took up some of the moisture and some of the nitrogen fertilizer for the, that was intended for the corn. So we think that contributed to a little lower yield. So that is one management thing that we have to look out for. Now, on the with the soybeans this year, we were soybeans this year, I don't think we really saw uh, much negative effect there. We planted the soybeans green right into the growing cereal rye and then terminated about 10 days later. And I think we're okay there as far as yield. I will say in a wet year that the cover crop probably allows you to plant maybe a day earlier some years because the the equipment has that firmer footing with the growing cover crop out there. And sure. so farmers like that, you know, to be the first one in the field with a planter, you know, get bragging rights. <laughs> one one thing the question that does come up and that's one of the arguments for fall tillage is that with that black surface the soil worm warms up more quickly in the spring. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the arguments against no-till. Well, but what research has shown, and you could talk to some of the soil people at, at MSU about this, but I think they would back me up. But uh, what research has shown is that with tillage, indeed, at the peak of the sunny part of the day, that black surface is warmer than in the, no, in the no-till field next to it. Mm-hmm. However... The no-till field probably varies less during the 24 hours. So the tilled field is going to get colder at night and warmer during the day. The no-till field is going to have a more, it's not going to be as cold at night and not quite as warm during the day. So more consistent. Right, it's more consistent. Exactly, it's more consistent. So less variability. So that's important because for corn to germinate, it shouldn't go below a certain temperature. So, yeah, you might be planting the warmer soil, but that night maybe you're getting colder than the no-till field next to you. Good where point. That, where that seed might germinate faster. So um, that is one consideration. So, Lee, you mentioned you were recently elected to the Soil and Water Conservation District there in Polk County. I was just wondering right. if you have any thoughts or things that you would like to see implemented in relation to protecting the the soil and water and and what that group does yeah well we're we're hoping like i said just had a meeting this morning we're we're hoping to utilize this batch and build model that i mentioned that that they formulated a couple years ago for the saturated buffer work in my area we're hoping to use that kind of model for a a no-till cover crop campaign also and we're just we're just getting started thinking about how to do that one of the interesting things is there's going to be most likely going to be quite a lot more federal money available for conservation in the next several years so we're hoping to write a grant but we need a we need a plan first so it might be something that blue earth county might want to look at up there too but i'm sure you have a soil and water conservation district there yeah we're hoping to use that same model and really ramp up our uh, no-till cover cropping in the area now, do you have many lakes down there? Of course, we have a lo- quite a few in southern Minnesota. I was just curious, down in your area, do you have many? We we don't have very nat- very many natural occurring lakes in uh, my area. We have three fairly large 
man-made lakes that I can oh. think of, Big Creek, Sailorville, and Red Rock. And those are all in uh, kind of the Des Moines River Valley, and those are reservoirs also, and reservoirs and uh, sources of water. One of them is a source of water for, for Des Moines, one of the sources. But no, in this part, we're actually right at the bottom of the Des Moines lobe, and up in Mankato, you're kind of more towards the top of this lobe. It was last glaciated about 13,000 years ago. And up in your area, there are a whole lot of uh, shallow lakes, of course, as you know. And uh, But we don't have that so much. Northern Iowa has a few more. There's a Clear Lake and, and a few other uh, lakes up in that area. But no, not so much in this area. I was just wondering if, as a on the Water and Soil Conservation District, that if there were things related specifically to bodies of water that you were looking at in terms of protecting quality. Right. Yeah, we actually did discuss the water quality at Big Creek Lake this morning, and we uh, we do have jurisdiction, I guess you would call it. Uh, Big Creek is, is in Polk County, and so we, we have some sort of input into um, water quality there. And, and yes, we do need to know, uh, do more work in that area. Part of the watershed is in another county, so that would, you know, we would need to be working with SWCD in that county as well. But, um, yeah, we, we we have a problem with the water quality in our lakes in Iowa. You've probably read that there are some beaches that where the swimming is, uh, was, is banned every, every summer, mm-hmm. and that's not a good situation. So we need to find out exactly what the cause is in that. Both the dissolved phosphorus and nitrate are part of the problem. Uh, we've also found that uh, geese droppings are another problem. Oh. Some of the lakes are back, back, the source of bacteria. So, yeah, you really have to do the science, you know, and figure out uh, what's going on and then work on it. The city of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, has had a robust, robust program working in their upper watershed with farmers and cover crops, I know. So there are you know, water systems and uh, lake associations and so on that, that are doing these things. And, um, you know, we need to do more of it to uh, improve our water quality, both for drinking and uh, also for, um, you know, for recreation. Lee, what has made you so interested in taking care of the land like you do? Because not everybody is as environmentally minded as you. You know, well, thank you. I, I'm certainly not an expert and um, I'm learning as I go. I think I think, you know, I was in 4-H when I was 10 years old. Me too. In Pennsylvania. And I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we started learning about, you know, contour farming and 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 things. And, and I, my parents were both very interested in, in, um, in these topics as well. And we had some uh, books around the house that got me interested. Silent Spring by Rachel Carson and some of these other early works. And then, unfortunately, I didn't know much about my family farming legacy in Ireland until I was in college, but then once I learned about it and we moved back here, it seemed like a good place to start. And, uh, you know, you just read and go to meetings and try to be educated. And I, I think it's really important to be on the land as much as you can, just walk around, ride your bike down there, you know, just sit and, and uh, watch how nature works. And I think, I think that uh, little by little we become uh, better stewards of the land if we do those things. I would tend to agree with you as being a a big gardener that I am and from a big farm myself. Is there any sources or resources that you would refer people to that are helpful in maybe becoming more aware and and learning more? 
Well, the, the organization that I fall back on a lot is Practical Farmers of Iowa, and we have an annual conference here in January every year. It's coming up in, hmm. in about a month in Ames here at the Iowa State University campus. It's a great place to connect and learn what other people are doing. They have uh, lots of sessions on everything you can think of related to agriculture and direct marketing, conservation, sustainable ag, and climate change-related elements in ag and so on. So I guess that's where I would start. There, there are quite a few collaborators with PFI, as we call it, up in Minnesota as well. So it's not just, not just Iowa. It's the whole mm-hmm. upper Midwest. We're looking at things like more perennial crops uh, so we, don't, we can get away a little bit more from the corn-soy rotation you know, get away from, from tillage and as much trying to get away from so much fertilizer application and other synthetics. So I would start there. And then, okay. uh, you know, there are a lot of a lot of other uh, places to look to, but that's a good place to start. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you chatting with us, just letting us know some of the things that you're doing personally on your farm and in Iowa. And I wish you well on the Soil and Water Conservation District down there. And hopefully we'll be having some more things to talk about in the future. We've been chatting with Lee Tesdell of Iowa, former professor here at Minnesota State University and the owner and operator of Tesdell Century Farm in Polk County, Iowa. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you, Karen, and Happy New Year. Take care. Yes, Happy New Year. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.